this feels like this will be called open content. But I, I realized the other day when listening to the podcast that I've been pronouncing uh, the Swedish Prime Minister's name wrong in my head all this time. So what did you think? Well, I, in my head, I was always thinking, I was like, oh, like, Lusten, 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 like a loaf of bread. Uh, but yeah, how, how, how would you say it? Well, Levian, we say Levian. Welcome back to the Europe Alex podcast. I'm Gabriel Hedengren, and with me today, surprisingly, is not our beloved Ewan Healy, who's currently on a very well-deserved vacation, but rather the soothing voice of our history corner, Matthew Nicholson. Hi, Matthew. Hello. Good to be here in the present. Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to to the podcast. How, how are you doing this this week up there, up in the north of Scotland? I, I'm not too bad. We've we've had our first day of sunlight in about a month and a half, so um, I'm I'm very happy. How are you? Not as bad as that. I I've actually quite relaxed. I had a day off today from work and went to the barbers, went for a swim. So I'm um, I'm all I'm all ready for some political chat and uh, getting getting deep into it. In this episode, we're joined by Aslak Eriksrud, who's the political commentator at Norwegian TV channel TV2. And he'll be able to give us some context on the upcoming national parliamentary election in the Scandinavian country coming up in September, which is obviously going to be a action-packed month for European politics. But first, a little message on how you could support us and our headlines from across the continent. Europlex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we want to do more. We started sharing exclusive discussions, special content and more through our Patreon. Access all that from as little as one euro per month. Don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. So before we jump into our regular headlines, we have our Bulgarian correspondent, Teodora Yovcheva, who's joining us for a brief update on the lengthy and painful and chaotic government formation process that has followed the country's general election in July, which obviously followed the regular general election in April. And we're all waiting to see if they can beat Israel's chaotic record of three elections in a year. It's looking quite likely. So welcome, Teodora. To start off, please recap very quickly the results of the July election and who gained and who lost and how's that shaping what's going on right now in Bulgarian politics. Hello. So the July election was the second election for Bulgaria for this year. Basically, it repeated the result of the April election, but with one difference, ITN the populist formation of a very popular TV host and pop folk singer Slavi Trifonov succeed to surpass uh, GERB with very small margin, actually 0.5%. But the new formation won the elections. And uh, what is very interesting is that this margin came from the citizens voting abroad. So uh, GERP succeeded to win the election in the country, but with the voters from, the, from abroad, ITN succeeded to be the first force. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't change much because 
the political uh, parties and coalitions, again, like in April and after the April election, are not willing to form coalition and to elect a government. So we are in a situation when they behave childishly, declaring that they will not cooperate with each other and leading the country to a governmental deadlock. So to talk through now, as briefly as we can, it's a complicated situation, the procedural aspects of this. Uh, ITN won the election, they were in first place, which means that the praxis is that they're given the first shot at proposing a government. How did that go? Well, uh, this is a very interesting question because it uh, arises the question of the Facebook democracy, the TV democracy, and replacing the traditional means of uh, communication with citizens. So uh, ITN won the election, but even before they uh, know it, before the official body, which is Central Electional Commission, to announce the results, ITN was very sure about their win. So they decided to propose a cabinet with the prime minister uh, presented by Trifonov on their own channel. The reactions after it was very negative among other political forces, not because of the people who were uh, proposed as ministers and prime minister, but because of the way it was done. First, because there was no clear winner still, and second, because it was not negotiated with um, the other parties because ITN succeeded to win, but they have only 65 from 240 uh, members of parliament, which is far from sufficient to form one party government. But they decided to take a shot and to announce their government before consulting with other political forces, which, as I said, was acclaimed very negatively. And then they said that they will take a step back and they are ready to negotiate with another participants of, in the parliament. Then the negotiation started, but it was explicitly said a few times that they will negotiate only for policies, not for a cabinet. ITN, uh, several times, they were absolutely sure that they are the only one who can propose a government without consulting the government members with the other party. So they want to be a prerogative of them to choose the people. And actually the negotiations were very positive because after every negotiation, politicians say that they have at least 90% of coincidence of, the, of their ideas. And everybody in the, the political spectrum was sure that the government would be formed. But then uh, ITN decided again to take surprising move. And they say that they will uh, nominate prime minister and they will uh, nominate cabinet. And if the other party wants to support it, then okay. If they don't want, we will go on a third election. So if we can fast forward to where we are at this very point, what's the likely government that Bulgaria will see over the next few months until the next election? And when do you think that will be? Is it basically set in stone, do you think that it will happen later this year? Well, it's a very tough question because we still have 
second shot and uh, third shot for the governmental formation. The second shot would be taken by GERB, but they already declared that they will take it. They will present the, um, the cabinet, but not in the parliament because they, want, they don't want to be voted. They want to show the society that they, that they have experts and they are ready to take the responsibility if they are first force. But I said that they would not want to be voted in the parliament. Then we have the third shot before the early elections again. Uh, and the parties are uh, united by one thing. Two of the parties, Bulgarian Socialist Party and uh, the new formation of uh, former ombudsman Maya Manova, which the formation changed its name to uh, stand up, we are coming. They said, as the socialists also said, they will propose the incumbent caretaker government appointed by the president, Ruman Radev, to be elected as a regular one. But ITN and GERB have uh, already said that they would not support such a uh, proposal and as they are the two biggest forces, if they vote against it, it would not happen. So we are very mostly and likely to go on the second early election and third for this year. And to add to all this parliamentary um, chaos, there's also a regular presidential election coming up, am I right? So potentially Bulgarians will go through four national level elections. How does that play into what is going on? Again, it's very interesting constitutional situation because uh, in the mid of the, the autumn, maybe in the beginning of November or in the end of October, uh, we need to have a presidential election. But the body which um, appoint up, up the date for it, it is the parliament. So basically, the parliament cannot be dissolved by the president until it sets a date for the presidential election. Again, we are in a very interesting uh, uh, constitutional and political cases. This would be a fourth election in general in, the, uh, in this year for the Bulgarians. And what is uh, interesting that incumbent president Roman Radev is very popular and he was candidate of the Socialist Party the first time when he ran for a presidential election. But now he's supported by the Socialists and from the ITN, which is again interesting because they support the president, but they don't want to cooperate with, with Socialists for a governmental formation. Definitely very interesting, very complicated as well. Uh, but thank you. I think you've updated us all on what's going on and we will all be following the developments ahead of what's very likely to be another eventful fall for Bulgarian politics. So thank you for coming on and explaining all that, Teodora. Thank you. And now over to our other headlines. August is normally a quiet month for elections, so this week we're looking at an election being held a little bit beyond the shores of Europe in Zambia. Last Thursday, the African country held elections for its president, its national parliament and its local councils, in which incumbent president Edgar Lungu of the centre-left Patriotic Front seeks a second full term in office. Lungu's main challenger, Hakainde Hishilema of the Liberal United Party for National Development, is contesting his sixth consecutive election having run in every presidential election since 2006. In both 2015 and 2016, Hishilema ran close contests against Lungu, 
only being narrowly defeated on both occasions, and now surely hopes that the sixth time is truly the charm. And the race is certainly viewed on all sides as to be another close contest. Rising unemployment, the high cost of living, and a growing financial crisis, which saw Zambia last year default on its national debt, have been key campaign issues, which Hichilema has capitalized on in his vote charting a path to the presidency. President Lungu has also been accused of increasingly authoritarian tendencies, most recently deploying the military across parts of the capital, Lusaka, during the election campaign following the murder of two patriotic front activists, which the opposition has condemned as an intimidation tactic. On the other side of the campaign, Lungu has emphasized his poverty alleviation and infrastructure programs, while promising to improve living standards over the next five years. By the time you listen to this, the final results should be known. But at the time of recording, very early unofficial results point to a lead for Hichilema, but it's too early to draw any definite conclusions. The competition for control of Zambia's parliament, meanwhile, is also very much worth paying attention to. The patriotic front, Lungu's party, won a majority of just three seats in 2016, but it's very possible that the close race this time round could see this advantage slip away. Of course, if you want to keep up to date with the elections in Zambia and in other African countries, you maybe don't want to carry on tuning into us at Europe Elects. You'll have much better luck following our magnificent partner, Africa Elects. You'll find them on Twitter at, at Africa Elect and Africa Elects on Facebook. Now let's move on to less electoral, but definitely more European news as we head to Poland, where uh, following Jarosław Gowin's dismissal as deputy prime minister, the government's coalition has partly collapsed, threatening its majority in Sejm, the country's lower house. More specifically, Jarosław Gowin's center-right party, Porozumienie, that was a junior partner in the National Conservative peace-led government coalition, has now left the coalition and brought its majority down to a very narrow margin. The very real scenario of a complete collapse and loss of majority for the government seems to have been averted, as some of Porozumienia's MPs did not follow the exit and opted not to join the new parliamentary group. However, this is of course an ongoing story, so the exact number of the government's majority, or even whether or not there still is one, is still up in the air as we record this. At the same time, the peace-led government's new media bill, which was opposed by now former Deputy Prime Minister Jaroslav Govin, passed the lower house somewhat controversially. The bill would ban companies from outside the European economic area from owning a majority of shares in any TV channel, essentially silencing TVN, which is owned by US Discovery Group and often critical of the national government. On Wednesday, a motion to postpone the vote till September unexpectedly won a majority, but the Parliament Speaker repeated the vote with centre-right Kugis's 15 changing its stance. So a lot of uncertainty, switching of sides, and parliamentary drama in Poland. Indeed. And our, our colleague Nas Redin calculated the other day that if the Polish government had fallen, this would have been the seventh government in the European Union to have collapsed this year. And that's been averted so far, but that would have been something to imagine that, what would that be, about one in four EU governments would have collapsed in the space of eight months? Yeah, chaotic times, but uh, lots for us to discuss. <laughs> yes, it's, 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 great, it's great material. Keep it coming. Now next, we, we don't have a, a government collapse, at least not yet, but we are moving north into the Baltic neighbourhood, where the centre-left Social Democratic Labour Party of Lithuania, or LSDDP, rebrands itself as the Lithuanian Party of Regions, or LRP. Founded in 2018 by former Prime Minister Gediminas Kirklas, this political party was formed out of a schism of party members that were against the Social Democratic Party of Lithuania's departure from the Agrarian Lithuanian Farmers and Greens Union's 2017 cabinet. 
uh, and it later also integrated dissenting members from the centre-left Labour Party. This year, LSDDP, now LRP, if you're keeping up with the acronyms, elected Jonas Pinskus as its new leader, and under his leadership, the centre-left Splinter Party has adopted a new image and platform while aligning itself with the conservative Electoral Action of Poles in Lithuania, Christian Families Alliance, and the centre-right Freedom and Justice Party, holding nine seats in the Lithuanian Parliament under the new Lithuanian Parliamentary Group of Regions. I'll definitely memorise that. Yeah, it'll be on the test. <laughs> and in other somewhat electoral news, there has been a symbolic upset for the German Greens ahead of the September 26th federal election in the country, as the party will not be allowed to run as a list of candidates in the state of Tsarland. Germany's Federal Election Committee decided earlier this month that the party's last-minute change of its lead candidate on its ballot for Tsarland violated democratic principles. This doesn't mean that the Greens are completely out of the game in Germany's smallest lander, which borders Luxembourg and France. Voters can still vote for individual Green candidates, but cannot cast a vote for the regional list of the Greens. This is important because it's the vote for regional party lists that tend to determine how many seats are won by each party in the proportional distribution of seats at the national level. So definitely a big hit for the party. The Greens, as most of you will know at this point, are doing relatively well still, maintaining their second place behind centre-right CDU-CSU in most polls. However, the party has not been able to recapture the surge in polling that brought it briefly to first place uh, back in May, and centre-left SPD is steadily catching up and contesting for second place. In fact, we already had a poll issued by Politbarometer on Friday, where SPD appears to be tied with the Greens for second place, so they're feeling some pressure, even though they're at historically high levels. And there is this very fascinating sort of three-part race now uh, ahead of the elections next month. But I guess a bit of a fork in the road for the Greens. Yeah, Germany sometimes gets a reputation, very unfair, I think, of being quite boring politically. But this election is shaping up to be incredibly exciting, where any one of these three parties and three candidates could somewhat feasibly, you know, perhaps end up becoming the next chancellor. Yeah, there definitely there are so many different combinations and agreements that might come depending on the results and depending on what the parties decide to pursue that are realistic, which in a lot of countries you get worked up about, you know, potential coalitions, etc. But then usually things fall more or less along usual lines. But with the Greens being so big and CDU being weakened and not being the natural leader anymore. And with Merkel gone, it's very much up in the air, as you say. So yeah, definitely looking forward to that next month. Very exciting indeed. Uh, but now I'm moving to a country that has even more exciting politics, where <laughs> I've got some news from Italy, where uh, former Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte has been elected to lead the anti-establishment Five Star Movement. This signals a shift in orientation for the party that seems to be trying to cement its position in Italian politics after a few years of quite deteriorating polling numbers, as well as a shift in orientation for Conte himself, a law professor who started out his career in politics as a technocrat prime minister for both the Five Star Movement Liga coalition and the Five Star Movement Democratic Party coalition. In the intra-party election, Conte ran unopposed and received a whopping 93% of the votes from Five Star Movement members in an online vote. The Five Star Movement currently holds the most seats in the Italian Chamber of Deputies, but has retreated into fourth place in polls since mid-2019. The party remains a part of Mario Draghi's unity government and is banking on Conte's popularity, gained in part thanks to his handling of the coronavirus pandemic, to be able to remain a key player in Italian politics. Yeah, definitely interesting to see him 
take a party political stance because I I always saw it as his strength, right? In the in the chaos that is Italian politics, that he was more of a technocrat. So we'll see what this leads to in the mid and long term. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see if that uh, is able to turn around the fortunes for the Five Star Movement. And now we go to our favorite segment, and I'm assuming it's really everyone's favorite segment. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the polling highlights. One would expect less highlights in late July and early August due to most countries in Europe completely shutting down, but that is definitely not the case. Starting with the country that is always represented in this segment, we go to the Netherlands, where the agrarian BBB keeps climbing with yet another record high, this time with six projected seats in the latest pale seat projection. The party had just one seat in the parliamentary election back in March and has been rising for a while. I mean, it is a bit unfair with the Netherlands because just the sheer number of parties they have, there's always going to be one party at a record high or a record low. But um, currently, BBB uh, is the party that's that's really standing out in their polling numbers. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you could probably just found a party for the, the sole purpose of getting into our polling highlights and you'd have a, a reasonable chance of doing that, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but now next up, Sweden, where the success of the Swedish left party has continued throughout the summer, with the most recent poll from Novus putting it at 13.3%, which is the party's highest result since January 2002. The party's polling average for July is also at its highest level seen since the 2018 election, where it got 8% of the votes. Another party that seems to be on the rise is the green left Mojemo in Croatia, the party that controls the country's capital Zagreb since winning the mayor election there back in May, reached a new record high with 16.2% in the latest Ipsos poll. This also puts the party ahead of the centre-left SDP for the first time. So interesting to see Croatia being another country where there is now a fight between the Greens and the centre-left for sort of the, the progressive leadership in the country. I'm not sure a lot of people would have predicted that a few years back, but it's happened thanks to that successful mayoral campaign. And obviously we'll keep you posted on whether or not they can maintain this momentum. And now to Germany, uh, once again, contain your excitement, where I suppose we'll be spending more and more time talking about until the very impactful and fascinating federal elections. Uh, indeed, we've already spoken about it twice today. Uh, but for now, we should just mention that the centrist Freie Wähler, free voters in English, reached a new record high with 3.5% in the latest INSA poll, just a few months after its first appearance in polling. The threshold to enter the national parliament in Germany is, of course, at 5%, so this puts them in the ballpark to be able to win some representation in the German Bundestag. Uh, and it'll certainly be a very interesting night for the Freie Wähler, which, while perhaps not being one of the headline parties, I think will certainly be worth watching as the election night goes on. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, they have a potential of becoming that if they have a a successful campaign because like they're sort of under the radar and if they get a few extra percentage points they could be uh, the new hot thing in Germany coming from nowhere really from from most people's perspectives. Moving to outside the EU now we go to Ukraine where the center-left UND appeared in a poll for the first time. The party was founded by Boris Kolesnikov, a former member of the center-left party of regions and former minister of infrastructure and polled at 0.3% in the latest Keys poll. You got to start somewhere, I guess. <laughs> Matthew, in your new party, every uh, tenth of a percent will be a record for you. Uh, but yeah, it's always um, exciting and interesting with, with new parties and you never know how long they'll be around and uh, we've seen crazier things than uh, the new parties eventually surging and getting influence. So we'll see if that will be the case for UND. Yeah, I have seen this before. We'll get a new party formed and then in 
perhaps say by-elections or something, they'll, they'll win 0.4% in one election, 0.5% in another, and you'll see all the, the small huddle of party activists getting very excited about their, uh, you know, un, un, untamed rise. But, you know, the, we, could, we could be speaking about the next governing parties. So Who knows? Uh, I mean, Ukraine is very volatile. Indeed. Uh, and now finally, for the last bit of polling news, staying outside the EU, we go to Norway, where the Socialist Red Party is seeing a summer surge well-timed for the country's September elections. The most recent poll from Kantar saw the party gain 7.5% of the vote, which is more than thrice its election result of 2.4% in 2017. This puts the far-left party comfortably above the 4% threshold of getting proportional seats in Parliament. A recent regional poll from Oslo shows the party getting a massive 10% in the country's capital, meaning that even if it underperforms nationally, it can expect to at least keep its one MP. And obviously I'll be discussing this in a much more later in the episode. But first, let's talk about our EU parliamentary prediction for July, reflecting polling movements from the whole month of July and offering an indication of how voters in the European Union would vote should there be an EU parliament election today and more overall the general mood of our lovely continent. The biggest month-on-month change was a three-seat improvement for the centre-right European People's Party, led almost entirely by the polling boost for the Polish Civic Coalition electoral lines caused by Donald Tusk's return to Polish politics. In terms of losers, the Greens' European Free Alliance group saw its vote share and seat projection decrease for the second month in a row, finding itself in a neck-and-neck fight for sixth place with the left group. The decline over the past months is mainly a result of declining support for the German Greens that saw historic polling peaks in May, but have attracted by about 5-6% to since. And obviously in our projection, it goes without saying, movements in bigger countries like Germany, Poland, France is what drives the the biggest changes really so the eu parliamentary groups really do count on those parties in the major countries importantly we should note that the basis for ursula von der Leyen's commission which is a wide coalition between the center-right center-left and liberal party groups still holds a comfortable majority when looking at the polls around the continent for more detailed analysis check our latest full projection on europelex.eu And finally, before we wrap up in the headlines and news from all around the continent, we have some exciting news of our own to share with you. Europolex has very excitingly formed a strategic partnership with the Euractive Media Network, continuing our efforts to help Europeans across the continent understand election dynamics outside of their own country. Throughout September, Euractive and Europolex will provide in-depth coverage and projections for the German parliamentary elections, hopefully giving all Europeans, and perhaps people from even from outside of Europe, the opportunity to understand what is happening in the largest member state of the European Union. On the press release, which you can find on both of the Europolex and Euractive websites, Europolex founder, our fearless leader, Tobias Gerhard Schminke, stated that we are delighted to partner with Euractive for the German parliamentary elections, seeing it as a real recognition of the work we do and an opportunity to communicate about elections and polling to a truly pan-European audience. The German parliamentary elections outcome is important for all of Europe, and we look forward to complementing Euractiv's independent coverage. If you want to check out all this coverage and projections that our partnership will produce, make sure to subscribe to Euractiv's flagship daily newsletter, The Capitals, and tell us what you think. It's very exciting for us as a, uh, as a group to enter a partnership like this and uh, do love uh, seeing Tobias provide us with a lovely press release statement <laughs> on it. But I'm very much looking forward to to seeing the, the coverage over the next month, uh, mentioning it now for 
whatever the number of time, <laughs> but the German elections are huge. Uh, so it's a perfect time to, uh, to pool resources with similarly nerdy politics people um, caring about what happens in European politics. So yeah, definitely looking forward to seeing how that develops. And that's all the news from around the continent. Uh, and for us, thank you for listening and stick around for our discussion with Norwegian journalist Aslak Eriksrud. I also like to say thank you to, to you, Matthew, for coming on the podcast. It's been great to have you here, to hear you outside the lovely history corner setting that you managed so wonderfully. So yeah, it's great to co-host with you. Oh, it's been fun. Thank you. Uh, I'll get back into my time machine now and <laughs> hopefully we'll reappear in a history corner near you soon. If you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whichever platform you listen to us from. And of course, tell people about us, your friends, your family, everyone. That will mean the world to us. Also, if you have an idea for a segment, thoughts and topics we should be covering, or if you just want to say hi, please shoot us an email at podcast at europelex.eu. Just one month to go until the Norwegian parliamentary election. Very little points to current Prime Minister Anna Solberg and her centre-right Conservative Party being able to extend their grip on power beyond the eight years they have run the country so far. Uh, in fact, poll-based calculations uh, from recent weeks are showing that there is just 1% chance or less, uh, or risk if you want to see it that way, of that eventuality coming into place after the elections. And this is because, as you can imagine, the country experiencing what can only be described as a Wave with a recent poll carried out by Kantar for uh, Norwegian TV channel TV2, showing no less than three left-wing parties gaining in recent weeks. This comes after a long-term increasing support for the Centre Party, which has vowed to form a coalition with the left following the elections as well. You'll remember that we spoke to one of their MPs earlier this year. With me now to discuss this poll, but not only that, also more generally how the election campaign is shaping up, is TV2's political commentator, Aslag Eriksrud. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Lovely to have you here. And first of all, your channel's new poll shows the right-wing bloc getting its lowest level of support for decades. I believe it's 25 or 26 years, something like that. Just to start off, what have they done wrong? And why hasn't there been any sort of COVID bounds for Anna Solberg and her government that other governments have seen around Europe? Yeah, the Prime Minister, Anna Solberg, she saw the COVID bounce last summer when she was sniffing at up to 30% for uh, the Conservative Party. But now we are uh, exiting COVID uh, and the Norwegian voters are not giving any politicians credits for things they have done. They, it's uh, more uh, what they are planning to do. What are their new projects that uh, the Norwegian voters are uh, uh, in general, looking for. Erna Solberg and the Conservative, Centre Conservative government, uh, with their uh, partner, the, the Progress Party, are uh, back to start as the situation were before the, the COVID crashed into the country. So um, there is no COVID gain at all left for Erna Solberg. The, the COVID came one year earlier <laughs> for, for, for the Norwegian <laughs> Prime Minister. Yeah, one year too soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the most dramatic sort of long-term trend in Norway is the rise of the Centre Party. I'm aware that that peaked sort of earlier this year, but they're still at historically high levels. And as I said, we had one of their MPs on the podcast earlier this year to discuss the success. 
what would you attribute the party's growth to uh, and where have they attracted these voters from? And I guess also some listeners will be interested in the reason why they actually want to go with the, the left-wing side of politics, because definitely in certain areas, they're quite conservative, agrarian, some would call populists. So why are they pushing for a left-wing alliance? Uh, the Centre Party is, as you know by the name, it's, it's a party that is in the centre of the politics. And uh, for um, decades, they were a Conservative Party. Being in uh, governmental coalitions with uh, the Conservative Party and other and the Christian Democrats. But uh, something happened after the EU election, and that is, wow, it's uh, 30 years ago, when the, the party was um, was uh, trending more uh, against the, the left. And uh, 16 years ago, they went into government with the Labour Party and the Socialist Left Party. And since then, they have been uh, on the left side of the middle line in, uh, in Norwegian politics. Uh, but they were about to uh, disappear as a party uh, <laughs> after eight years in, uh, in government, uh, but uh, have been very consistent uh, in their rhetorics in the last eight years. And um, four years ago, they were taking off with a rhetoric that has been consistent on criticizing the conservative government for being centralizing the country in area after area. And they have touched a wind blowing over the, especially the districts, the rural areas, the countryside of Norway that people are recognizing. And the other Political parties have the last three or four years tried to move after the Centre Party on that path. On the other side of this left-wing alliance, looking more short-term, especially there have been recent gains achieved by the two socialist parties, so the Red Party and the Socialist Left Party. It'd be interesting to hear why you think they are gaining at this very moment and just very briefly characterize their their politics in a, in a European perspective. Because from the names, they seem... Uh, rather left-wing, they're obviously to the left of the main Labour Party. How radical are they? And are they simply taking voters from the Labour Party or from other more unexpected places too? Uh, we have the socialist left party and we have, let's call them the, the communist party. It's, it's the old communist parties uh, together in one party now. But uh, they are uh, more modern in their way of uh, organizing uh, politics and they have, have left uh, the uh, let me say the more ideological issues and are speaking more uh, consistent on everyday life of Norwegians, actual politics and are gaining uh, from that. And the increase of inequality is an issue in Norwegian politics uh, and has been rising on the agenda the last uh, few years. And the, those two parties uh, are gaining a lot from that. But the Labour Party, the big governmental party that has been in opposition for the last eight years are experiencing uh, governmental wear, actually, <laughs> after eight years in opposition. Let's say a political wind gaining out from the center of the politics to uh, where the voters want uh, easy, simple answers uh, to their uh, problems, uh, their things that they are, uh, that's important for them. But the Labour Party and uh, their leader has not been uh, uh, able to jump on that train. So I'm taking it then in terms of the political issues that are emerging as the most salient ones in this campaign. Is, is it those sort of longer term economic questions around inequality? And is that what's leading to the red wave? Are there any other sort of unexpected questions that, that are propping up as being high up on the news agenda that, that's driving any of these opinion changes? 
Yes, you have the uh, inequality and you also have a big uh, issue in uh, how are we going to organize uh, the welfare state? Are we going to have private contributors or are the public companies that are going to, to make sure of it? So there are, there are a classical ideological issue on privatization of the public uh, sector, especially healthcare education. So uh, that is issues that are uh, spreading the borders away from the center of the politics. And the, the two left side parties uh, are really gaining on that. Actually, all the parties in the opposition are gaining a lot, but not the Labour Party, which are uh, still on a level that is uh, will be historically low if they don't uh, rise the next four weeks. As you've said, though, and as most of our listeners will know, the Labour Party is still the governmental party that sort of for the last century has been the, the natural leader of centrist, centre-left governments. And having talked through, obviously, the centre party and now these more radical left-wing parties, how troublesome is this for the Labour Party in terms of uniting all these forces on the left? Obviously, it's easy to campaign and be oppositional, but are there any sort of debates and discussions about their sort of overall agenda if, as it's looking very likely, they do end up winning? And also, in terms of government, will all these parties want to have a place in government or will there be some sort of mixture between government coalitions and then parliamentary sort of supply relationships? Uh, that's the big issue <laughs> in the, uh, this campaign. <laughs> but last, the last time the, the central left, the, the red-green coalition was in government, they went to the election with a clear view of who was going to be in government. It was the Centre Party, Labour Party, and the Socialist Left Party. But this time, they are just campaigning as different uh, governmental um, alternatives. The Centre Party don't want to have anything to do with the socialist left party anymore. They just want to go to government with the Labour Party. That is, uh, I think that is both a strategic choice, but also I think the Centre Party and at least a big part of the Centre Party wants to break up the two-block thinking that we've had in Norwegian politics for the last 16, 20 years. Uh, they want to be in a central, centre-left government that can also uh, gain um, a majority with some of the right-wing parties. But the Labour Party, they want to, to create a majority government with the Centre Party, Labour Party and Socialist Left Party. Uh, and the Socialist Left Party, they want to cooperate with all the, the people on the left side of the middle line. That also includes the, the Communist Party and the, the Green Party that are uh, uh, gaining success as well. So I guess it remains to be seen which ones, uh, which one of those options end up being what the Norwegians um, get to deal with over the next four years. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really interesting to to get all this detail and latest updates on the campaign. Obviously, at Europelex, we'll be publishing all the polls from TV2 and others and providing live coverage uh, when election day comes. So yeah, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe and of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, and YouTube. You can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media and at Europe underscore Lex on Instagram. See you next time. You've been listening to EuropeLex podcast hosted by Gabriel Hedengren and Matthew Nicholson filling in for Ewan Healy. The managing director was Polychronos Karampelas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, 
Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kakouris, Guilherme Ferreira Resende, and Yanis Arshakian. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do wouldn't be possible without our patrons on Patreon. So thank you. Yeah, just cut it there. <laughs>